thesis is that because the original people here were enslaved, Americans look upon all black people as slaves, not worthy of having equal rights, and that the effects of that, that the discrimination that sort of remained through Reconstruction after the Civil War and then into the 20th century remains and uh, it's baked into our institutions. And um, so we have never been able to shake the legacy of slavery. That is the thesis. And why people are especially upset about it is it advances that thesis in these very simple lessons to little kids who are then taught to look at their uh, friends or their classmates as either their oppressors or being oppressed. And so it introduces racial conflict into the classroom. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and joining me very shortly will be Mr. Jonathan Astro. He's warming up that microphone, he's slipping on those headphones, and just in time to debunk the 1619 Project. Mary Graber earned her PhD from the University of Georgia and taught college English for 20 years. She is a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization in Clinton, New York. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zinn and most recently Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. Mary, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Mary, your book is called Debunking the 1619 Project. And for the benefit of perhaps uh, our Australian audience, we've got uh, listeners from all over, but can you give us a brief overview of what the 1619 Project is and, and perhaps uh, a little about its author? Yeah, well, quite literally, the 1619 Project was a special issue of the New York Times Magazine that came out in August 2019. And uh, the occasion for this special issue was the fact that uh, allegedly 400 years earlier in 1619, uh, the first slaves had arrived on the American shores and in Jamestown. And our history uh, since then, as is presented in the 1619 Project, has just been one long um you know, history of oppression uh, against um, the descendants of the slaves. And um, and so the, the occasion was this 400-year anniversary, which other publications also marked, such as Time magazine. Um, it, but they did not get as much um, play here. Hardly anyone noticed them. Um, but what the New York Times Magazine did is in a special prearranged uh, deal that they had with this nonprofit called the Pulitzer Center, they had these lessons for school kids, K through 12, made up and they shipped them out immediately. So these other commemorations, um, no one had a problem with them. They were, you know, inaccurate as well. Um, but the fact that these, um, that the lessons that very dogmatically um, had little kids memorizing these um, ideological points of the 1619 project caused an uproar. These were never vetted by educators or school boards. And so these are lessons that are intended as they go along with the thesis of the 1619 project, they are intended to um, sort of usurp our national history so that the founding of the United States is no longer presented as 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, but it's founded in the year 1619. And the uh, creator of this project made that abundantly clear because on her Twitter page, she had for over a year, um, the uh, year 1776 struck out and replaced by 1619. Just uh, just to jump in here quickly, Mary, what, what's sort of the time frame here? So 1619 was published. Uh, how long then was it until these uh, sort of classes started to, all these resources started to enter into to schools? Immediately. I mean, the, the uh, it was published uh, in late August, um, August 18th, I believe. 
And um, that semester, that fall semester in August and September, um, 3,500 schools had these lessons. Uh, A number of big school districts like Buffalo, New York, adopted it officially. So these were slipped in. They were um, immediately used. I mean, uh, this was all prearranged. Generally, you know, when you have a textbook, it goes through years you know, you have these committees that, you know, it's, it's supposed, they're supposed to be written by specialists in the field, the academics, the educators. Uh, then it goes, you know, through review processes. It's uh, scanned for sensitivity, you know, for making sure that th- there are, you know, proportionately uh, enough people of color and, and disabled people, and you know, for diversity. But, th- but this was like, immediately slipped into the schools and no one, no one knew it was coming. Parents didn't know school board members didn't know. Um, and, uh, and it was adopted, uh, under the pretext that it was supplementary, but, um, immediately it, it took off and you have these radical educators who are radical to begin with and are looking for this kind of material using it. Um, so, so the, that that's what was so amazing about it is that it was just instantaneous. So the project aimed to reframe uh, America's history around slavery and enslavement, uh, and and thus uh, get us to to think differently about uh, Afri- the role of African Americans in in uh, America's history. So this these are big. This is a big project pulled off by someone called Hannah Nicole Jones. Is that her name? Or Nicole, Nicole, Nicole Hannah Jones. Jones. Yes. Oh, I, I make that mistake all the time. Um, uh, she does change her name a lot though. So I'm not going to, uh, you know, so anyway, but go, this woman, um, or this writer rather, uh, going by reputation and plaudits, I, I assume she's among the most respected and venerable historians in the US today. Is that, is that true or? No, she's, she's a hack. <laughs> she's a journalist. <laughs> no, she's a journalist. Um, she has an undergraduate degree, I believe, in history, uh, a master's degree in journalism, has been a radical her, you know, entire career from the time she wrote an op-ed when she was a college student. Um, she was, when she was working for a couple newspapers, one in Oregon and one in North Carolina, and then she was hired by the New York Times. Her beat was education and race. Um, and in the journalism world, the education beat is, you know, not very prestigious. You know, you have to go to boring school board meetings and, you know, people want to be, you know, going to the White House and they want to be in on national security and international affairs. So that's where she was. And she focused on race. Um, and so, so that was her ideological lens. And um, most of the 1619 Project, the inspiration for her essay and for this idea comes from her high school history course, a black studies course uh, in which uh, she was introduced to this radical 1960s writer, Lerone Bennett, who wrote this book, uh, I think it was in 1967 or so called Before the Mayflower, which discussed the year 1619. And it's it's a polemic, um, but it does admit some historical facts that she denies. But anyway, it's uh, Lerone Bennett, to give a little more context of who he was, he was a, a magazine writer for Ebony Magazine, a black uh, magazine for black audiences. And he was the one who coined the phrase black power. So black power comes from Lerone Bennett. Stokely Carmichael took up that phrase, used it, disseminated it. Um, You know, Stokely Carmichael agitated and, uh, you know, aroused mobs and inspired riots with his rhetoric. And so that's where she comes from. So it's a, a high school class. Uh, in which she selectively takes information from a radical 
writer and presents it as history. And she she may think it's history. She doesn't know any better. She's very ignorant of real history and scholarship. Just just to, to perhaps uh, backpedal a second and, and get to absolute basics for perhaps the benefit of our Australian audience. So there's two key dates here. You've got uh, 1619, which we've discussed as the, uh, the arrival of the first slaves. Uh, but 1776, can you briefly explain the significance of, of, of that date? Well, sure. We have, we have celebrated the 4th of July um, every year. It's a big holiday here. Um, you know, everyone has it off. Um, everything's, you know, closed. Um, it's marked by fireworks and picnics. Um, it's in the summertime. Families get together uh, here in this little town where I live, Clinton, New York. You know, at the high school, they set off this fireworks display. And it marks, um, you know, the, the uh, reading of the Declaration of Independence, which announced um, the uh, decision to break away from England and to become independent. And that is the start of our nation. It's in, we are independent. It's, it's the Declaration of Independence, mostly written by Thomas Jefferson. Um, and uh, so, so it's a very important date uh, here in the United States. It's a holiday. No one would dream of not celebrating the 4th of July. We have parades, picnics, fireworks, uh, people wear red, white, and blue, the colors of the flag, you know. Uh, no one would have thought of questioning that date before the New York Times Magazine published uh, the 1619 Project. But then, um, you know, that's questioned. And it's questioned through this, this false history. And um, so just like other holidays that we have here, uh, Columbus Day, which has been celebrated, you know, because Christopher Columbus, you know, when he landed in the Bahamas, he discovered the new world. Um, you know, that has been attacked. Um, it has been eliminated in a number of states and municipalities. And so this is what the 1619 Project also aims to do, I believe. Uh, and it intends to replace uh, the, the 4th of July with a holiday that would mark um, the arrival of the slaves, which is not really an accurate representation of what happened in 1619 anyway. So perhaps, you know, we can, we can take the gloves off a bit. What are, what are your main criticisms of the key claims in, in the 1619? There's a lot of them, obviously, so maybe a couple, couple of the, the major ones. Yeah, well, the, the first one is that, um, uh, that the slaves were kidnapped from Africa by white people, by Europeans, that they went in, inland. And um, there's been a children's book that's been uh, also published uh, it came out in November and makes this claim um, sort of like what I think the movie Roots represented. You know, you have these Europeans going into, you know, the jungles of Africa and they're kidnapping innocent black people who are just leaving, living their lives. Well, that's not the case at all. Um, there had been slavery going on in Africa and around the world since time immemorial. Uh, these African chiefs, warred with other chiefs and they committed, uh, they conducted raids on villages and they got people enslaved. And then they marched them to the shore where the Europeans were waiting on shore to buy them. So the Africans were the dealers, if you want to look at it as a sort of a, an illicit interaction of buying drugs, they're the dealers, um, the Europeans are the buyers. Uh, the 1619 Project says nothing about that. It says that they were kidnapped, and it promotes that myth, that falsehood. Uh, when the Africans uh, came to Jamestown, were brought there by a, um, a, a, a ship. Uh, they had originally been uh, going to Veracruz to work in the mines there. But then they were, um, pi pirates captured them, um, and then they were brought 
to Jamestown and exchanged for um, food, basically, provisions. And um, their status was not known. Uh, Were they indentured servants like the people from England who were brought, who came here um, for a term of, you know, about seven years and to pay for uh, their transportation and then they would get free, um, you know, working under horrible conditions in the tobacco fields. Um, We really don't know. There was no designation for um, slaves. Um, It wasn't codified into law. Um, so historians are still debating what was their status, where they could, they weren't considered to be lifelong servants. A lot of them, uh, you know, became free. Um, they prospered. And there's one case, uh, there was a, a legal precedent set by a man named Anthony Johnson, who was one of the first to arrive, uh, an African um, who established the right to own a slave. So he was African, and uh, his uh, servant, John Kaser, sued for his freedom, but uh, the judge sided with Anthony Johnson and said, no, John Kaser is your slave for life. And that was the first case. And since then, um, you know, although... In the antebellum period in the early 19th century, the vast majority of, um, you know, blacks here in the United States were enslaved. About 500,000 of them were free and a good proportion of them also owned slaves in the South. So it's a very complicated issue. It's not the simple, um, you know, a narrative of angels and devils, uh, you know, with the angels all being black and the devils all being white. Um, and so it leaves out a lot of that. And the aim is to present um, the founders and all white people as uniformly oppressors and benefiting from um, the labor of the enslaved. And it's fair to say, just as a, just to continue that on, there's, there's this current running through the piece that suggests that tries to link very clearly present day discriminations uh, with those with past discriminations correct yes absolutely um and it uh it makes that explicit and the lessons uh that are used in uh, classrooms make that connection um so the thesis is that um that because the original people here were enslaved, uh, Americans look upon all black people as slaves, not worthy of, you know, having equal rights, and that the uh, effects of that, that the discrimination um, that sort of remained through Reconstruction after the Civil War and then into the 20th century remains and uh, it's baked into our institutions, into policing, into banking, into um, employment. And um, so we have never been able to shake the legacy of slavery. That is the thesis. And it what and why people are especially upset about it is it advances that thesis in these very simple lessons to little kids who are then, um, you know, taught to look at their uh, friends or their classmates as either their oppressors or being oppressed. And so it introduces racial conflict into the classroom. Well, we're led to believe uh, that, that the slave trade was one of the main uh, contributors to the U.S. economy. And and the reason perhaps why it, it became so wealthy uh, was the slave trade and, and other industries that, that, that used slave labor, uh, the, the principal economic powerhouse in the U.S. during that time? Um, yeah, that's, that's another falsehood. And that's uh, a chapter of my book, Debunking the 1619 Project. And I rely on uh, mostly on three economic historians uh, who uh, look at the um, that the data that was used by uh, these neo-Marxist 
economists and what they uh they have a little bit of a problem with math, <laughs> basic arithmetic. They estimate that cotton contributed to 50% of the GDP. It was more like 5%. So yes, um, slaves did contribute to the economy. Um, they contributed to the wealth, though, of mostly of the plantation owners, some of whom um, you know, were also black. So it uh, con it was not very good for the overall economy of the South. Um, you know, there are a number of uh, outcomes from slavery that's, that held the South back economically, uh, um, you know, because it, it was an agrarian uh, enterprise, you didn't have the infrastructure built, you didn't have the encouragement of free labor, um, it drove down wages for white people, so you had a lot of impoverished people. So slavery basically benefited the 1%. And the argument that's used in the 1619 project that, you know, that the production of cotton built the wealth was actually the same argument that was used uh, by Southerners to uh, argue for keeping the institution of slavery. They said, hey, this is a major part of our economy. We can't survive without slavery. So, uh, you know, <laughs> hence civil war. Um, so it's the the economic arguments uh, that are promoted by an, one of the essays in the 1619 project by Matthew Desmond uh, are based on uh, much discredited scholarship. Uh, it the the scholarship has been discredited by numerous economic historians, and it just doesn't doesn't hold. Mm, well, what what percentage of the U.S. population owned slaves at at that time? Well, um, what I learned was about six percent, and if you look at the number of free blacks, about two percent owned slaves ex for exploitative purposes. We also have black slave owners who owned slaves to protect family members. But when you look at them as, you know, exploitative purposes, uh, you see that about a third as many proportionately um, blacks owned slaves for exploitative purposes. And that, that was based on a study um, that was done by um, a couple Canadian, uh, you know, professors. So, um, so that, so yeah, um, you know that that's another falsehood. Uh, you get this impression from the 1619 project and similar um, histories that you know everyone in the South owned <laughs> plantations and slaves, and that was that was certainly not the case at all. Well, it seems to be a, a big hole in their argument because they're they're claiming that that every white person in the U.S. has benefited from the slave trade. But when you look at those sorts of numbers of, 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 of how many how many white people own slaves, so so we're talking about a very, very small percentage of white people that benefited from the slave trade. That That's correct, yes? Yeah. There's also this claim that uh, the United States wouldn't be the United States without slaves. And it seems to me to be a, a very reductionist view uh, because it, it, it discounts the the, uh, the contributions made by, say, Irish immigrants or, or Jewish immigrants and all the other people that settled in the USA to you know to make a go of it. Uh, how does the sixteen nineteen project address these other immigrants and and the contributions that they've made? <laughs> it doesn't address them. Um, it, it, they're ignored, um, and that's what I try to show in my book. I you know I I talk about. Uh, the people who came here who were indentured, who worked side by side with the first Africans in the tobacco fields, a lot of them didn't survive, you know, their seven year indenture. Um, the Irish who came here, um, you know, uh, the Germans, um, you know, the exploitation, um, the in, in the early 1900s, uh, or the 1800s, sorry, before the Civil War, a, a slave probably had a better chance of surviving than an Irishman working on the railroad or on the canals. 
um, because, uh, you know, the, the owner of the slave wanted to protect his investment. And if an Irishman or a German died of malaria or whatever working in the swamps, you know, there, you know, he had no investment in him, you know, it was, you know, uh, a wage labor. So, um, you know, it's a counterfactual to say that because, um, you know, if there had not been, uh, you know, the African slaves, well, you had so many other people who were willing to come and who did also, uh, you know, build up the wealth of this country. So the 1619 Project just falsely discounts all of that and has this fairy tale presented, which presents all we white people as, you know, having this privilege and, uh, you know, sort of walking around and being able to do whatever they want and not having economic worries or anything at all. So do you think that one of the problems here among many is the lack of understanding of perhaps what was li- what life was like for people in the pre- pre-industrial age. So, and I'm not giving anyone a free pass necessarily because, you know, we're not, we're not saying that, uh, you know, everything's uh, on for young and old, but I feel like life was shorter and harder even a hundred years ago. And I feel like this is one thing that that is completely lost. And you, you've mentioned a much more nuanced point there about the different the the, the differences between you know a, 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 perhaps a slave and 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 someone you know working the railways. But I'm even if you just step back one level up and go, wait a minute, like aren't there a lot of contextual things that we're sort of missing out in the 1619 project? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's um, you know, I think that speaks to the fact that Nicole Hannah-Jones is not a historian. Uh, she won't acknowledge her ignorance. And, uh, you know, when you're researching history, you learn about uh, what life was like. You have to contextualize things. You have to understand that uh, life was difficult for everybody. Uh, you look at the mortality rates, you look at, uh, you know, how people were, you know, the immigrants were transported. Uh, context uh, is everything in history. Um, you can't sort of transpose your own living situation. Uh, and, uh, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones is enjoying, uh, you know, life, uh, you know, with all its luxuries and say, you know, well, you know, look at the slaves, they didn't have all this and this and this, neither did a lot of other people. So you can't really write history or be a historian unless you put yourself back into that time frame, not, um, you know, take what the expectations are at the present and project them onto the past. You have to look at it in context and, and that's, that's what the 1619 project fails to do. So it's not history; it's it's propaganda. Mm, well, the the whole 1619 project actually got me thinking a lot about the nature of scholarship and what history actually is. And so Nicole Hannah Jones, she's a journalist; she's not a historian. Her 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 1619 project was was originally a collection of essays, one of which she contributed. It's my understanding it was it was edited after release because of some heavy criticism. Now it's been expanded into a book with with added artwork, slam poetry, and other scrapbook elements. Uh, this seems to be a, a frankly somewhat unserious scholarly effort. Can you tell us how historians actually carry out their research and, and what are the methods and approaches that, that a, a typical historian would use? Yeah, well, my background, my PhD is actually in English. And, um, and uh, you know, one of the things that most people learn in school is the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And so it's interesting to me to see how fiction, you know, this bizarre fiction snippets of these scenes that were injected both into the magazine and into the hardcover version, this poetry that's, you know, not really poetry, just sort of inserted. And um, so this is all mixed together. And it goes back to a program that we had under the Obama administration called Common Core, which broke down those distinctions. And so that's something I point out in my book. 
Um, but any kind of scholarship is very tedious. Um, you, you, you can spend days on um, making sure you get uh, a certain fact correct, whether you're doing literary scholarship or historical research. You have to have an understanding of the person who wrote it, the time he or she lived in, um, the circumstances of the writing was, you know, this um, a letter written in uh, as part of a campaign to support a political candidate. Was it honest feelings? Um, so th there's this whole universe that you have to be familiar with. You have to be able to discern between different scholars, which one is credible, which one is not, which one is a polemicist, uh, which one uh, tries to be accurate. What is their reputation? Do they have an agenda? A lot goes into that. And you can't be someone like Hannah Jones, who has a chip on her shoulder from her own background, just sort of um, you know, remembering what she learned in high school and then attempting to rewrite American history. You know, she says it's reframing, but um, the, the, the most um, a prestigious historian would not attempt to do that. What you try to do when you're writing history is you're trying to shed light on a small part of the puzzle that's history. You rely on the, you know, you stand on the shoulders of giants. You go back to what they did. You take that into account. You find new material. You compare it to what's been said. And then you uh, sort of, you know, lighten up this little corner or uh, put in a little piece of the puzzle that wasn't there before. Um, you don't have this grandiose, magazine project that says, okay, Americans, you know, over 300 million of you, you're not going to celebrate this 4th of July because I, Nicole Hannah-Jones, have determined that, you know, the, the founding was not in 1776, but uh, the year 1619. It's really preposterous when you look at it from uh, the perspective of, of scholarship. It, it's audacious. It's preposterous. Um, you know, to have someone uh, this ignorant and with such an agenda even broaching the topic and um, having it infused into our educational system. So there, there were some criticisms from uh, scholars on both sides of the, the, the aisle, so to speak, if, if there is, you know, uh, 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 such a thing. Uh, either way, there was a lot of criticisms from, from heavy hitters and you know, what do we make of the the deft pivoting and massaging that went on uh, at the New York Times in response to that? Well, the, this is a big money-making project for the New York Times. Uh, they have abandoned even the pretext of being serious, objective journalists. I don't know if you saw um, the hit piece on Tucker Carlson, the series that just came out. I mean, th I mean, that's not serious. They, they, did, they never uh, even looked at the claims that he made or talked to people who might, you know, watch his program. Um, the New York Times uh, was looking, as I uh, exposed in my book, and, you know, it's been exposed in other places, but I report that they were looking for something else, uh, another controversy to sell their newspaper. Um, because after the Mueller investigation, uh, you know, the attempt to impeach President Trump fell apart. They had no other issue that, you know, would be sensational and draw readers. Uh, so there was a meeting and the decision was made that race would be an issue. And here comes Nicole Hannah-Jones and says, I have this great idea. <laughs> you know, the 400 year anniversary of uh, uh, 1619 is coming along. And, and that was the purpose of it. And, um, and, and one of the big money-making 
sort of sidelines of newspapers is education. The New York Times has for years um, been in schools. They have, you know, they, they try to sell subscriptions to schools. They've had these sort of discussion questions about newspaper stories. You know, they want to sell their newspapers to schools. They want to get future readers from students, subscribers. And so this is one way to make money and, you know, newspapers have been losing money. And so this was a big cynical money-making project. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. So, so, you know, whatever the objections were, um, the editors sort of, um, they would, I don't know, they, they kind of sidestep the issue and the responses. Is is historical scholarship the kind of thing a, a major metropolitan newspaper should be engaging in? <laughs> no, I mean they're they're writing history as it happens. Um, you can report on what's going on in you know the scholarship and debates among historians, but to undertake uh, such a huge project as a special magazine is issue is, is preposterous. I mean, if you're going to be, if you want to write history, become a historian, become a scholar and, and dedicate the time uh, and the energy that is necessary uh, to doing that. It's, it's, it's not, it's not an exciting, it, it is exciting, but it's not like being a journalist where, you know, you, uh, you know, sort of type up a story about something that happened and uh, send it off. I mean, I've done both things. And uh, it, it, it takes a special type of personality uh, to have the patience, to have the inquisitiveness, to want to be surrounded by books and to go into archives and to, you know, you know go through dusty papers and find this information. Um, that, that's what history writing is. It's very, it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of inquisitiveness, uh, a lot of time and effort to do it correctly. Uh, is, it, is it fair to say that there was not enough rigor or, or editorial courage applied in, in not just creating the work, but also responding to the criticisms that followed? Yeah, that's a good question. That brings me to another um, sort of characteristic of the scholar or historian, which is a sense of humility. <laughs> you have to know what you don't know, and you have to recognize it, and you always have to uh, consider uh, how little you do know. Uh, if you pretend to know it all, well, then you're not a scholar in any sense. Um, so you have to approach your topic with a sense of humility. There is no sense of humility by the people writing for the New York Times. Uh, quite frankly, they they don't care if they're getting it right. They have a, a political objective, an ideological objective. And even some of the historians who were initially critical of the 1619 Project have backpedaled uh, in order to advance their own careers, they have tried to ride on the coattails and reversed some of what they have said in the past in order to conform to the thesis of the 1619 Project. Well, perhaps before we leave the New York Times behind, uh, I've watched discussions uh, of of this work involving Jones herself and Jake Silverstein, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Magazine in various settings, you know, listening and listening to their defences of, of, of the project and, and the criticisms, they seem genuinely perplexed by the blowback. Uh, sometimes Jones seems defensive to the point of parody, like really highly, highly defensive and jumps straight to ad hominem. doesn't matter whether it's like Chris Wallace or... It could be anyone. Like she'll, she's coming for you if you if you don't like this thing, hundred percent. Now I don't want to make it personal, and you don't have to sign on to anything you don't want to here. But I have no other way of saying this. But these two in particular, Silverstein and Jones, they seem completely out of touch 
with mainstream society. They come across as elites who are completely wrapped up in themselves. Is this is this an unfair assessment or? Uh, no, I think it's a fair assessment. I think um, th- that uh, they are both ideologues. Um, they, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones has admitted that she is falsifying history. I've caught her on it. Um, in a tweet, I've been blocked, but I found a tweet that she had, and um, she knows she knows that that slavery was a worldwide institution around for thousands of years, and that it was practiced in Africa. Um, but she wants to focus on you know what she calls the original sin of America. Uh, I think she is a very embittered person. Uh, you know, she has talked in interviews um, about her experience growing up. She's biracial. She um, was grew up in a black neighborhood in Waterloo, I- Iowa, um, but was bused to a majority white school uh, from second grade on. And uh, she rode the bus an hour each way. I think that affected her worldview um, and she talks about how, as she was getting closer to the, her school, she'd see how the neighborhoods were nicer. And so I think she has built up this resentment um, and is very embittered and very angry and is trying to get revenge on, uh, you know, American society and white people uh, who I think she just, you know, hates unless they, of course, Uh, bow down before her, which a lot of white people will do, even to the point of ignoring history or um, agreeing to what they know is um, patently false. So I think there, you know, uh, these people, you know, whatever their motivations are, um, they are not people who desire uh, to know the truth or to know about, um, you know, uh, complexities of life and about other people. They're very self-centered. They're uh, after money and fame. And uh, those are their motivations. And they see uh, this 1619 project as a way to achieve their goals. And they're very defensive of it. And they don't... they don't have the facts on their side. So they have to attack uh, critics as, you know, uh, ipso facto racists, or uh, if they happen to be black, uh, self-hating or something like that. So there's a reason why there is this lashing out and um, insult and the ad hominem attacks. They, They don't, they can't um, defend their positions with knowledge and facts. Just to just to follow up on on that, what 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 do you think their ultimate goal is with the sixteen nineteen project? Well, the goal I think is um, the same goal that Howard Zinn had, uh, the the Marxist historian that um, uh, I wrote about in my first book. Um, the goal is to transform this country. It, it's to upend our system, our constitutional uh, form of government, replace our uh, legal system that aspires to treat people equally, um, you know, regardless of race or uh, gender or other factors, um, and to replace it with a um, with a system that privileges certain groups. Um, so uh, the notion, the, and this ties into critical race theory because critical race theory, um, you know, claims that this idea of fairness is really uh, is really a ruse um, to because uh, there are people who, because of history. Um, uh, have a burden. They can't. They can't 
be treated equally because they have this the weight of history on them. They, they don't have the same privileges. And so I think the goal is to uproot our form of government, our system of justice, and replace it with something that's a Marxist form that looks at, at certain groups, uh, that, that looks not at individuals um, who are endowed by their creator with uh, certain inalienable rights, but as members of groups, of classes of people uh, who have protections or conversely um, need to be discriminated against in order to make up for the injustices of the past. Well, we saw this play out in real time. Uh, following the publication of the magazine, George Floyd was was killed in Minneapolis. Riots broke out in major cities and we saw violence property damage and, you know, in some cases, deaths, which you, I know you've spoken about. The New York Post wrote, wrote an op-ed titled, quote, call them the 1619 riots, close quote, linking the riots to the 1619 project, to which, Hannah, to which Nicole Hannah-Jones responded in the now deleted tweet, quote, it would be an honour. Thank you, close quote. So what did you make of 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 Jones's response and 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 you know continuing uh, th- does this give us further insight into into the into those motives? Yeah, no, it's not surprising at all. And um, on subsequent Twitter's uh, tweets, rather, uh, she has defended um, violence. Um, it's it's a, she she wants a revolution in the streets. Um, you know, whether or not she believes it's justified, she may in her mind, uh, you know, believe that it is justified. Uh, but the killing of people doesn't bother her. There were about 25 people killed, inclu- you know, including police officers, black police officers, innocent people. Um, that does not uh, factor into the equation And to me, that's a symptom of someone who's a sociopath, you know, to to, um, think that what your words have led to the deaths of people and $2 billion worth of property damage, to people's livelihoods destroyed, people beaten up, Um, you know, uh, here... You know, I remember, you know, that summer, it was like you were you wondered if you lived in a certain city or even in small towns, if you'd be able to drive through a certain intersection because these mobs would be would be blocking the roads. Um, There were people sitting in restaurants who were assaulted by these mobs, had their tables overturned as you probably saw. So this was chaos, destruction, death. And to then tweet out um, that you're glad to have inspired it, uh, I think is a sign of a very sick mind. And um, and so, and so that tells you, uh, you know, where these people are coming from. And they're the last people who should be writing uh, lessons for school children and inspiring, you know, the, these people going out and, uh, you know, rioting in the streets. Yes. Well, maybe we'll pivot to children for a second. How much damage do you think has been done? because of the widespread rollout of this already? Well, it's divided the country. Um, it, you know, we've been divided and, um, it, you know, and, and I saw these educational um, trends going on for decades. Um, but people, parents have noticed and, um, you know, I think they were okay with, you know, things that were done, you know, trying to make the curriculum more multicultural and, and introducing diverse pictures and characters and, and things into the curricula. Um, but when they saw that, you know, second graders are being asked to evaluate themselves and their classmates by the shade of their skin and, and to give points for, you know, whether or not, you know, you're a Caucasian or, you know, you're Hispanic or whatever. 
um, you know, they were justifiably alarmed. And so we've had um, laws either introduced or passed in over half the states that forbid the use of this toxic curricula. Um, the 1619 Project and critical race theory upon which it's aligned and based. Um, but now you have this big debate and Nicole Hannah-Jones and her allies are screaming censorship, that, that her work is being censored, um, you know, that it's a truthful, hard history that, you know, people, kids need to be in these struggle sessions to learn this. And so... Um, you know, you, you've got people who have, uh, you know, who are now uh, in conflict uh, over this. And I think it's it's a political ploy. It's intended to divide people, to paint critics of the 1619 Project as racists, uh, you know, as those Republicans who watch Tucker Carlson and uh, who allegedly attempted a, um, a, you know, a takeover of the country uh, and an insurrection, as as the Democrats call it, on January 6th. This is all tied in together. So it's another way to paint people who are simply concerned about, um, you know, their kids not being indoctrinated, concerned about accurate history, even-handed history, to paint them all as these demonic individuals who are opposed to uh, free speech and honest history. Have, have the legislative uh, measures uh, gained much traction? Have, have, have they had an effect in pushing back against the 1690 Project? Um, yes. Well, I think, um, you know, I think it's, it's an attempt. Um, and it's usually the bills that uh, forbid the use of the 1619 Project also forbid any discussion of um, critical race theory principles, which um, mark people of certain groups as either inherently racist or um, subject to racism. The educators are a wily lot. They're very subversive. I've been around them. I've reported on them. I've taught. Uh, they, they change the wording so they slip in um, programs that are essentially critical race theory or that teach the 1619 Project version of history and say, oh, no, no, we're not, you know, we're not doing what this bill says. Um, so, um, there is this, um, this constant pushback from educators, uh, who are ideologues, um, uh, they're members of the union, unions of teachers unions who are a huge political force, nonprofits that are pushing this agenda, a lot of political players. So it's a, it's an overwhelming, um, task but it's it's come down to this i think the 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 educators the educrats have finally pushed so far that there's been this public outcry um and all of a sudden it's like well wait a minute we were working behind the scenes we were doing all this stuff and you know now people are objecting well yes um you know it's just become so obvious what you are doing well, maybe we can pull back to some big sky uh, questions, you know, to sort of lead us lead us out. So I got a selfish question. When I went to Washington uh, prior to the pandemic, now I stood before Lincoln's statue and read those moving words on the wall, and um, it was I was a mess. It was an incredible experience. I want everyone to be quiet there. Why are people so loud in that? That but I don't know. Everyone's always talking. Um, but basically. Um, I've noticed that Lincoln's been thrown on the pyre along with others as being a kind of a white supremacist devil. Uh, uh, so to allies, you know, like us in Australia, figures like Lincoln represent the very essence of the American project. So that's perhaps some counterpoint to some of the claims made against the man. Would you mind telling us some of his achievements, if you wouldn't mind? Well, yeah, I mean, he he was, you know, the great emancipator. I mean, you know, he... Um 
he, you know, I mean, there is still there is still this debate among certain historians, you know, about you know whether the the South was uh, right to secede, uh, but whether or not you agree with that, um, you have to consider what what Lincoln did. He was a strong ally of Frederick Douglass, um, you know, the first. A president to invite blacks into the White House. I mean, it's not it's not good enough for people like Nicole Hannah Jones because he wasn't you know woke, um, but uh, you know his uh, he I think he personally abhorred slavery. Um, he of course was limited as president uh, in terms of what he could do. He's a lot of. People criticize him for stretching the Constitution, but he did have limitations. Um, he, uh, you know, he was a political leader, so he had political considerations to make when he spoke. But ultimately, the man was assassinated for his position, um, and you know, he 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 died for what he believed in. Um, and you have to acknowledge that, um, that, you know, we, we ended slavery legally. We did not have absolute complete equality. That's true. Um, but you have to look at it in, in the context of the times and, and what was accomplished and also the incredible sacrifices, you know, three quarters of a million um, soldiers dead. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's treated in the 1619 project as just nothing that, that, you know, no one made any sacrifices that, uh, you know, that, that, um, it, it, there is no sense of gratitude or respect, um, you know, for what this nation has achieved or for what, people like Abraham Lincoln sacrificed. We've got just just a, a, a couple more questions to go. Now, if the 1619 project is bad history, where can we go for good history? Well, um, you can go to my books. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, debunking the 1619 Project and debunking Howard Zinn. And, um, I've got, I think, a, a pretty good bibliography there. But um, for a school curricula, uh, there is a 1776 uh, curriculum put out by, um, by Hillsdale College. There's Land of Hope. A very good uh, sort of basic history textbook, which is excellent for high school students or maybe college freshmen. Um, that's written by uh, Wilfred McClay. I highly recommend that. Um, and I, I would, you know, I'm a great fan of biographies and um, of re also of reading original documents and. Uh, you know, read for yourself. Um, see if there is an agenda. See if there are, if a, you know, one of the things that I taught my students when I was um, teaching college English was um, look at the characters um, in a story. Are all characters of a certain group presented as being all bad? And, or, and conversely, other characters of another group, are they all good? Well, if that's the case, you're not reading real literature. You're not reading about real people who have flaws. You know, you have um, tragic heroes in, in Shakespeare, right? People who are great, but then they have this weakness or, you know, um, a blind spot um, and they're brought down. Well, it's the same thing in history. There are no people that are angels and there are no people who are devils. Um, and when you read a history book that promotes that idea, like Howard Zinn or the 1619 Project, um, you should start to question it because this is not what real people are like. People are complicated. Um, they're circumscribed by the circumstances that they're in and um, uh, by their own times and by what they know. Um, 
And so I think, um, you know, uh, the, the approach to reading history should be one where um, we look at uh, the, the players in history, uh, people in the past, as um, human beings with flaws, blind spots, um, with limitations on what they can do. And, um, uh, you know, to evaluate what it is that they did and things that happened within that whole larger framework, the whole, the whole context of history. Well, I think we have one, about one and a half questions left. Uh, you, you are clearly in, in, in a battle for the truth. Uh, against ideology and this can be a lonely road and the forces are great uh every institution as we know has been captured by uh certain ideologies so why is this battle worth fighting and is it a battle we can win well um yeah i mean I, i'll say this to my dying day you know we need to fight for the truth and um i, I cannot you know participate in lies. I found that out when I was in graduate school. And, um, you know, I just had to speak out against a professor uh, who I knew was um, distorting the truth or lying. Um, I think I'm optimistic um, in the sense that the educators that are out there who are in power, who basically pushed out people like me um, and people who want to do real scholarship, they have gone so far that they have raised this public outcry. So back in the 1990s and the early 2000s, um, you know, I was writing about what was going on. You know, I, you know that this has been a long, ongoing process. Uh, people didn't really pay attention. Oh, that's education. Yeah, we know. You know that they're professors are leftist, especially, you know, in the humanities. But I think now we've got this um, groundswell of citizens who um, are, are waking up and they are electing people um, to school boards, to governorships, to stop this toxic indoctrination. As a matter of fact, this week I'm, I'm meeting with two people who are running for school board here. I mean, no one, you know, people ignored the school board, right? It, it was, you know, school board meetings were, you know, attended by the lowliest in, on the, you know, in the journalism hierarchy, those reporters, you know, okay, you know, you sort of go through the motions, but these are now very important positions. And um, they are important positions. They should have been important positions because uh, the educators are producing the future generations. And if you, you know, and going back to the 1619 Project riots of the summer of 2020, you know, what I would like to have people remember is, you know, when you see lessons like the 1619 Project and these biased textbooks, they're not just books, they're not just words, they are producing those very disturbed people that we saw in 2020, pulling down statues, um, smashing windows, attacking people in restaurants. These are the mobs. And that's what this kind of work, like the 1619 Project, is intended to produce. Nicole Hannah-Jones admitted it. Well, Mary, uh, I think we've come to the end of our interview here. We're so we're just so grateful you've been able to afford, afford us the time to run us through the 1619 Project. More importantly, debunking the 1619 Project. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course. Uh, where can people follow you? Uh, are you on social media? Yes, I'm on Twitter and um, Facebook, and I have a website called dissidentprof.com, and um, and I also have a website called marygraybar.com, and, and I post my articles there. Uh, people can get in touch with me through those two websites. My um, books are available uh, at all bookstores online, uh, Barnes & Noble 
sometimes carries them, <laughs> although not as much as the 1619 project. But um, Well, you'll be pleased to know that uh, Audible was pushing um, debunking Howard Zinn on me for quite a while. Oh, like, good. like it, it was it, it, the audible algorithm knew what I was into, and it uh-huh. said, it, and it said, you really need to, you know, what about this one? What about this one? And I kept, I was like, no. Oh, and then one day I was like, oh, all right, and <laughs> I didn't regret it. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, well, just our final quick question: uh, we love to ask our all of our guests what they're reading. So, what are you reading right now? Oh, I am. Uh, well, I'm working on my next book, and I'm reading. I read several books at uh, one time. I'm reading um, Stalin's War um, uh, by Mc- Sean Mc- McKeenan, I believe it is. Um, it's a. It's another history of uh, World War II that came out in. 2021 20, um, and uh, a, a number of books. I've got piles of books, uh, you know, uh, for my for my research. So I'm reading um, about mostly about World War II right at the moment. I'm also going back to the early days of this country in Virginia and the early days of uh, slavery as well, reviewing some of those materials for a project. Well, thank you again so much, uh, Mary. We look forward to. Uh reading that book when it's out and having you back on the show one day if you'll come i I would love that thank you 